This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Good afternoon, Cherries fans, and welcome to this extremely special opposition preview show here on Up the Cherries in All Departments. Now, of course, final game of the season is against Everton at Goodison Park. I thought all along that it was going to come down to this, that both Everton and Bournemouth were going to have something to play for. Luckily, we've been on the beach for the past couple of weeks. Um, We secured our safety just after that Crystal Palace game. Of course, Manchester City did it for us, actually, by beating Everton. Um, Of course, Sunday's opponents. But Everton do have something to play for. They're currently, though, in the driving seat. Leicester and Leeds are just below them, though. So any slip-up, they could capitalise on. Now... It is a pleasure to welcome on a very special guest for this show. My special guest was a member of one of the biggest bands of the 90s. He was part of Ocean Colour Scene, of course, a band that was well known for the Riverboat song, The Day We Caught the Train, the album Molesley Shoals, and of course, the trademark song on TFI Fridays. Of course, that was the Riverboat song. It is a pleasure to welcome on Everton fan and bassist from Ocean Colour Scene, Damon Minchella. Good afternoon, Damon. How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. Good afternoon to all Bournemouth people. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on Ocean Colour Scene, one of my favourite bands back in the day. Um, I'm sure we will cover that off. But I'll tell you what, Damon, let's go back to the very beginning. You're yeah. from Liverpool one yeah. of the most, if not the most, musically rich cities in the whole country. Yeah, when did you decide you wanted to become a bassist and how easy was it breaking into the music industry? Blimey. Uh, well, like most kids from anywhere on the planet, particularly boys, I wanted to be a footballer. I was pretty yeah. decent, to be fair. I was a good goalkeeper, um, but I had a really bad leg break. In a, in a training game I shattered my leg completely through on my right leg yeah. um, and I was in that was back in the day when when you were had broke, broke anything they put you in plaster and I mean actual plaster as opposed to yeah. modern stuff and so I was, my leg was in plaster for six months 
Um, so I didn't go to school for three months because I literally couldn't get around. And that was when my family relocated from Merseyside to the Midlands. And as a going away present from one of my schoolmates, he gave me a bass guitar. And because, yeah, so I was, I was sitting <laughs> up in this new home. I hadn't gone to school, so I didn't know anybody. So I just started <laughs> going, what, well, what, 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 what happens with this thing with four strings on it? And then I started playing along some records and I was like, oh, okay. This is really good. I didn't realise that the first record I played along to was a song called Red House by Jimi Hendrix, which doesn't have a bass guitar on it. So mm -hmm. obviously, pretty much anything I was playing sounded awesome. So I thought, oh, yeah. God, this is really easy. Um, and then I joined school bands and picked up shit. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Picked up things from there. Breaking into the music industry. Oh, flipping heck. That's a question you get asked a lot. Um, it's probably the same as becoming a professional footballer. Yeah. And there's many different levels, you know, you could be an you know, sort of non league, semi pro, then you can be a pro but playing in the old fourth division <laughs> or or league two as it's called now. So you're still a professional, but yeah, we couldn't you know, then you've got you've got to think of other things as well eventually. Or you can end up playing near the top, you know, for one of a massive team like Everton yeah. or a smaller team like Bournemouth, joking. Um yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, there's many different ways of breaking into the music industry, but I just got into a band with three like-minded souls who really mm -hmm. were stubborn enough and stupid enough to think we were really good. Fortunately, we were pretty good, so then you made we made a name on the local scene. Yeah. And it was local journalists and sort of local radio started talking about us, and because of that word spreads a bit, then a guy who was the music publisher for the Fine Young Cannibals. Yes. Yeah, and he lived in Birmingham. He came to see us play and set up a record label for us straight away because he wanted to sign us. It was a tiny little independent, but he was connected to more people in the music industry. And then we ended up getting a record deal. And then sort of the story starts then. But success is many years away. Of course. So, so literally course. at this, this stage, we're just, we just signed our first pro contract, but we're in the, we're in the under 18s. We haven't made it to the first team bench yet. <laughs> of course ocean color scene started in 1989 um how did it all come together because i understand it was actually a, a gig wasn't it um yes yeah, sort of yeah it was kind of at stone roses gig as sort of ocean color scene legend would have it but <laughs> me uh, the singer and the drummer were already in a band you yeah. had a different name but steve the guitarist had gone to the stone roses gig but we knew steve Anyway, I didn't like him because we went mm -hmm. to rival schools, like proper rival schools. So we had a kind of mutual dislike of each other, even though yeah. we didn't know each other, just because of our different schools. <laughs> um, and then the singer had been trying to convince me to get Steve into the band. But I was like, I'm not having him in the band. He goes to that school, blah, blah, blah. But then when I found that he'd been to the Stone Roses gig, I thought, oh, okay, maybe he's got some taste. <laughs> so then we, um, we, about a week later, we just got him into... A garage somewhere for a rehearsal and uh, he was really good so we were like right you're in the band so we got rid of the guitarist we had at the time yeah very, very <laughs> stupid. um who, who was good but wasn't really you know committed to it and then that's where ocean colors informed uh and then what i previously said about you know breaking into the music industry that's when that kind of started you know mm -hmm. so yeah it kind of was at a gig but we were three quarters there already 
with regards to the early days, and I'm sh- we'll come on to one of my favourite albums of all time, Mosley Shaw's, um, in a moment. But the early days, you started off in 1992 with a self-titled album. Um, what were those early <laughs> days like for the bands breaking in? Um, well, I mean, they were hilarious because we suddenly found ourselves on a major record label. Yeah. So instead of making like demos and sort of vaguely crappy recordings at really cheap studios in the Midlands, we were going down to London for like three months at a time, staying yeah. in nice hotels and being in these ridiculous studios. But we weren't very good then. Well, we became like the band that made Moses Shoals, etc. years later. At this stage, we were just really inexperienced. Um, we were and we were easily led by a and by record labels, the record label and the different producers they put us in with. Um, so it was kind of a weird experience because we presumed we were doing the right thing by listening to everyone. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, we ended up being really unhappy with the music we were making because it wasn't reflecting what we wanted to do, which eventually turned out, you know, came sort of to fruition around Moses Shoals period. But Sounds like it's a tale of heartbreak, but it was also really exciting because all of a sudden you're not on the dole. Yeah. You know, you're actually <laughs> living this dream, sort of partially living this dream of being a professional yeah. musician, you know. So it was, it was, a, it, well, it was an invaluable experience that then f- made us a sort of unbreakable force we were for a while, who then went on to do everything themselves, which resulted <laughs> in Mosey Shoals, etc. Because without that experience of the first album, we wouldn't have develop that self-belief that our way was the only way and yeah. everyone else could quite literally off <laughs> <laughs> fair <laughs> enough fair enough um 5th of february 1996 was when the riverboat song uh, was released and the song become the big hit didn't it yeah. um did you expect the song to be that successful at the time not at all <laughs> <laughs> it was actually it was actually a bit of a get-out clause, that song, mm-hmm. because the record label said to us, you pick the first single, because they yeah. they earmarked They We Caught the Train to be the third single. And they, they'd already picked what the second single should be, so they said, you pick the first single. So we picked the Riverboat song, because we thought it won't, it won't get played on the radio. It won't be a hit. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of like, so it's going to fail, so that's fine. We already know it's too mm-hmm. out there to be played on the radio. So then you wouldn't have that thing if we'd gone with something really radio friendly and it hadn't happened. We'd have kind yeah. of failed straight away. So we picked that because we thought there's no way it's going to be successful. And quite how wrong were we? <laughs> I remember it literally, I mean, six weeks before it came out, me and the, and the drummer, we were just driving up to a, in my mom's old car to get some money out from the cash point in Birmingham. I turned on the radio. Daytime Radio 1, first thing that's coming out of the speakers is the Sodding Riverboat song. I literally almost crashed the car. We was like, what? <laughs> um, so, yeah, and then it went in charts at number 15, which is also the day my grandma died and also the, the day I was playing um, Jules Holland show with Paul Weller. So it was kind of a big day, really. Yeah. <laughs> well... It was played everywhere. And, of yeah. course, uh, TFI Fridays was a show that you appeared on several times. And it was the song that they used to welcome out other acts to in the end. Yeah. Um, what was it like when you went on that show and, you know, meeting Chris Evans? It was hilarious. It was such a great show. And um, Chris was a 
Well, he still is. Yeah. A very, very funny, entertaining guy as well. So, I mean, it was basically a one massive party from start to finish <laughs> uh, with a TV show sort of happening in amongst the chaos. And yeah, yeah we were on it all the time, which was great fun. So yeah, it was it was it was fun, and that was kind of a sort of symptomatic of a different time where you would have a live TV show. I mean, there was a thirty-second delay, which was caused by Sean Ryder constantly saying the F, dropping the F bomb. <laughs> but it was apart from the it coming out thirty seconds after things were happening, it was literally unedited live, mm -hmm. bang straight through. Um, so it was really good fun, and you, you know, if you ever see in the old episode, you can really tell that a lot of it is sort of seat of the pants sort of um, tv production <laughs> no it was great fun and and chris chris was fabulous and he did give me his phone number once which um he, he called me i was in my flat in london and i was about to put a picture on the wall so i wrote his mobile number on the back of the picture because i had nothing else to hand yeah then hung the picture and it was such a big picture i literally couldn't be bothered to take it down again to get his number <laughs> so uh, i never called him back <laughs> Believe it or not, I have actually been watching over all three of the performances um, that you did on TFI Fridays. I'm sure there's probably more, actually, that, yeah. you know, throughout. How many times do you reckon you went on there in total? I don't know. Too many, probably. <laughs> yeah. Quite a lot, to be fair. Yeah. Quite a lot, yeah. Yeah. Um, of course, you also released from Molesley Shoals. Um, You've got it bad. The day we caught the train, fantastic single, and the circle. What was it like recording those hits? And is there any favourites that you've got from the album of those or that we haven't mentioned? Um, well, recording those because we did it ourselves. The, um, the vast majority. We got our own little studio, uh, <laughs> which used to be the studio that Dexy's Midnight Runners did their first two albums. But when yeah. we got it, there was nothing in it. So when we said the studio, there was no equipment in it. Um, we had really, really basic equipment, literally four, only four microphones for the drums. And any uh, any sort of studio engineers or people who understand drum miking who listen to this <laughs> uh, will go, that's not enough microphones. So we had really basic equipment, but I learned how to engineer quite quickly because there was no one else to do it. Yeah. Um, so we started doing it ourselves. And things started to sound really good, but we were making an album for ourselves. So it wasn't like, oh, we're recording hits, you know, yeah. because we were just like, these songs are great. Someone at some point is going to really like them and give us some money. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, as it turned out, a lot of people really liked them. And so, you know, you get a record deal, et cetera. But it, it was a great time because we were doing a few gigs, but generally we were just in the studio literally every day. Yeah. So when we did the Mosley Shoals sessions, if you like, that was over the space of two years. We must have written and recorded over 100 songs. Mm -hmm. um, and that was really good because then we picked the ones that were really, really good. Um, so it was a great, wonderful experience, to be honest with you. And then we kind of upgraded the studios. We went along but kept it in the same spot for at least two more albums. Um, and then towards the back end of making Mosley Shores, we brought in um, a producer called Brendan Lynch and a co-producer called Max Hayes to basically mix it for us because we were great at recording, producing it, but the final bit of getting it to sound as big as possible, we couldn't quite nail. So, yeah, it was, it was awesome. Yeah. I think that answered the question. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Most definitely. Of course, Britpop was a massive 
thing in the mid nineties. Um, with the majority of the bands from the north of England, are there any bands that you liked or disliked in particular? <laughs> well, I really like the Verve um, yeah. as people and their music. Um, obviously, mm-hmm. Oasis because we were. Really, uh, to some degree still good friends with certain members of Oasis but at the time we were really tight with Oasis so they were great uh, the cast the lads from the cast were great as regards most of the other bands they were just this is going to sound terrible all the coattail um, hangers and I won't mention any of the bands but it's not fair but you can kind of tell and they were terrible they were real bandwagon jumpers and the the name Britpop was invented by a couple of journalists, but really it was just blur to some degree, but it was us, Oasis, The Verve, cast a little bit, a couple of other bands who were just doing what they liked. Yeah. And we all happened to know each other and be friends and would often support each other and whatnot. So then that became a scene, which it wasn't really, it was just a bunch of mates. You know? mm-hmm. But I guess it kind of crystallised in... The week that we released um, the album after Moses Shaw's marching already, we went in the charts at number one. Oasis yeah. were in the charts at number two. And the following week, the Verve were releasing Urban Hymns. So the following week, the top three was Oasis, Verve, and Ocean Killer Scene. <laughs> that was kind of the pinnacle moment of it for me. And then obviously, radio chased change. Um, and then it, things get saturated and you get all the copyist bands who sort of get, oh, we, we, we should do that, you know, so we'll yeah. try and get somewhere. And then people start to lose interest, you know, so, but then the real good bands just sort of carry on with doing their music anyway, regardless. But it was, a, it was an amazing time and a great time for culturally as well, because you didn't have a Tory government. You know, people were quite excited about the country they lived in. There was a lot of expression and freedom. And, um, you know, you could get a hospital appointment and park your car. (laughs) Well, exactly. Talking about that album, Marching On, um, Mm. you did actually knock Oasis off top spot. Mm. And you was touring with Oasis, you know, throughout the 90s. How did Liam and Noel actually react to that? Oh, they loved it because it was funny. Yeah. They also knew that um, we would knock them off the top spot, but the following yeah. week they'd knock us back down one. Yeah. So that's why it was quite nice that uh, the Verve re- released Urban Hymns the following week. So then th- they went in at number one. Mm-hmm. So Oasis didn't get back to number one. So it was, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was but the thing is, like, we all just thought it was kind of amusing that, and kind of silly, really, that we were all so successful and able to even get into the album charts, regardless of going anywhere near the top, you know. I guess you could say, if going back to this sort of football analogy, we are no longer in the under-18s. We're definitely in the starting eleven. you know. Yeah. <clears throat> so, but it was, yeah, it was incredible. And it was like, it was a friendly rivalry, I think is the best way to describe it. You know, because everyone's doing really well. So, you kind of, it wasn't like, you're number one, we're not. It was, wasn't, was not that really, you know. You did have the opportunity to become the bassist for oasis at one point um do you regret turning it down or is it something (laughs) Um, (laughs) no not at all not at all um Mm -hmm. it was quite simple because i was also i had my band which was stuck all these years together through adversity to get to where we were and i was also playing with weller and noel was like why don't you join the band but you can't play with porn you can't play with ocean color scene because you can only be in our in our band as in oasis and it's like well 
no, you know, because that's not fair. I mean, I would, I would, I would have dealt with like not playing with Weller to join Oasis, but you couldn't walk away from your own band just as we've we've done it. You know, we get we've yeah. got to a position where <coughs> we are successful. You can't then walk away from that. But you know, so I said, well, no. That was it. So I don't regret it at all, no, because they they then went on to be the band that did heathen chemistry and didn't like each other, and yeah. they all kind of fell to pieces anyway. So it was like it was, in hindsight, as good a move as it was at the time, which was a polite, oh well, not to worry. Yeah, no, fair enough. Um, you did release three more albums: mm. uh, one from the bottom, Mechanical Wonder, and North Atlantic Drift. Before <coughs> you did leave the band in yeah. two thousand three, yeah. how, if you don't mind me asking, mm-hmm. how did all that happen? Best way to think about it is: imagine if you, you've been going to the going to work with the same three guys fifteen yeah. years. Okay, so you stand on like a sort of I don't know factory conveyor belt standing next to these same three guys for 10 yeah. hours a day and then you leave mm-hmm. to go home but they come with you yeah and they sleep in the same house as you and you get up in the morning and they're still there and it's christmas holidays they're still there mm-hmm. after a while you start to have had enough of the same three people for 15 years yeah a lot of people who aren't in bands or even people who are in bands but aren't like aren't sort of you know on a sort of busy professional level probably don't realise how much time you spend together. It is literally every other minute you are together. (laughs) And they can be quite highly pressurised situations. And there's a lot of touring, a lot of movement where people are getting tired and get a bit argumentative. Yes. (laughs) So after a while, relationships just sort of fracture. And I was thinking of leaving anyway, because I've done it for 15 years. And I'm like, I was starting to enjoy it less and less and less. And like, mm-hmm. that's not why I was in a band anyway. I was in a band not for the money, not for any other reason that it's got to be amazing and exciting. Otherwise, leave. So it got to this point and I was like, yeah, I think that's it for me. And then a particular event happened which fast-tracked it, which was a big fight with the drummer. And I was like, I'm out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you eye to I'll... eye now? What's that? Do you see eye to eye now with the drummer or not? I know. Strangely enough, <laughs> now I play with <coughs> excuse me, Richard Ashcroft. Richard's doing a big gig in July, and my old band are supporting. So yeah. that will be the first time I've seen him since then, mm-hmm. which will be Looking. quite amusing. But it also, in a funny way, it'll be quite amusing because they're on stage before me. Yeah. <laughs> 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 <coughs> So you're kind of looking forward to it, but... Yeah, in a twisted way, yeah. Yeah, fair play, fair play. Um, Of course, since leaving, you have worked with some massive acts and have throughout your time with Ocean Colour Scene as well. Um, The likes of Sir Paul McCartney, The Who, Jimmy Page and Paul Weller managed to get all that from your website, in fact. Um, But what stories do you have of working with those incredibly talented people? Do you know what? It's because... People must think, oh my God, it must be some sort of weird sort of starstruck, you know, how could you possibly be in the same room with these people? But what you've got to remember is these people felt exactly the same about other musicians and everyone feels it. It's like when I remember seeing Paul Weller's face when Paul McCartney walked into the room was the same as most people would be if Paul Weller walked into the room. Yeah. So you just go, they're just normal people. And also I've always approached everything like that with a massive dose of 
humour because the fact that they've asked me to, to make records with them or be on stage with them, you let me think, well, you must be a bit silly because I'm not really that good. Yeah. You know, that's the only way to approach it, not... And then the whole thing becomes far less serious. And I mean, like, incredible stories of um, being in a canteen with Jimmy Page when there was a power cut. So I'm there with the dark lords of satanic rock and there's a power cut. <laughs> I'm in pitch black room with Jimmy Page. Um, just, just funny stuff like that. And being in a dressing if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Picture the scene. All of your mates around, you've got your McNugget share boxes ready to go. Partner this with your team playing champagne football. Perfect. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. There's nothing quite like a McDelivery. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Room with... Um... Oh, flipping out. Roger Daltrey, a live eight. And he introduces me to Jeremy Clarkson and then leaves. The only reason why he's done that is because he doesn't like Jeremy Clarkson. And he thinks, Damon will be stupid enough to, to, to be my sort of fall guy here. Yeah. So I'm left in a Daltrey's dressing room with um, Jeremy Clarkson. And I was like, uh, great. <laughs> Do you want a beer? So I said silly stuff like that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the whole thing is quite music related, to be honest with you. But, you know, as I said, just repeat myself, these are just normal people. They just happen to have very famous names, you know. Yeah, definitely. Um, you've also worked with Amy Winehouse, who mm. is easily one of my favourite performers ever. <coughs> um, of course, she's sadly no longer with us and taken mm. way too soon. What was Amy like to work with? She's lovely. The best, I mean, you know, aside from her voice, which is incredible. She's just really nice. She made a really good cup of tea as well, which is always a good test. <laughs> so she made a properly strong cup of tea. Uh, she was fabulous, um, really nice. Obviously had issues, but mm -hmm. most musicians at some point do. It's just the support network around them. If it's solid enough, we'll pull them out of it. Whereas Fares, unfortunately, wasn't. You know, I know lots of musicians who've done worse than Amy in yeah. terms of whatever they're addicted to but then come out the other side. But unfortunately she didn't, you know, so, and I haven't seen the film because I wouldn't want to watch it, you know. There's certain things you just go, that's for other people. But she was fabulous. Yeah, yeah truly great. Completely agree. Of course, you are an Everton fan. Yes. Um, and a big, big Everton fan at that. Um, of course, it's not been particularly the greatest season this year. <laughs> yeah. It hasn't been last season. <laughs> um, 
starting the season under Frank Lampard, did you see that it was going to be tough from the beginning? Yeah, totally. I mean, Frank Lampard was absolutely fantastic in uniting the the players with the fan base again mm -hmm. uh, at the back ends of the previous season because that had got so fractured by the ridiculous appointment of Benitez. I mean, come yeah. off it. Allardyce, Benitez, forget it. Mm -hmm. Particularly Benitez, it was appalling. Um, so bringing in Frank, that was good, but obviously wasn't a great manager. Fantastic footballer. He may become a great manager. He may not. He, that's that's probably purely up to him and circumstances. But it was so obvious at the start of the season that it was going to be a struggle. And the fact that we were crying out for some set, set of, at least one centre forward. Um, so instead of buying anybody over the two transfer windows, we just sold people, which is down to the board, completely mismanaging the team over. Since Bashir's takeover, it's been shocking. The team has gone absolutely backwards every season. Uh, you know, the hence why it's two relegation battles on the chart, you know. But bearing, bearing that in mind, due to my age, I mean, Everton have won the league three times since I've yes. been alive. Two FA Cups and a European Cup. So, I've, you know, I am used to where we should be, which makes where we are even worse. Not that we've got a divine right, but it's been coming for so long. You know, no centre-forwards. Again, so on Sunday, there's no, we haven't got a centre-forward unless we put um, Sims on. You know, who's, who's good, but he's still learning his trade. You know, he was at Sunderland on loan. So, a fact that a club that of our historical size and who spent so much money literally do not have a replacement for Calvert-Lewin is quite frankly pathetic. So we knew it was going to be a struggle for Frank. And that was unfair for him because Calvert-Lewin had been fit for all those first half of the season, we'd probably be mid-table because all yeah. we're lacking is goals. <laughs> all we're lacking is goals. <laughs> but you know, you know what I mean? Sort of defensive midfield is generally up to scratch to some degree. Mm -hmm. um, so it was obvious there was going to be it was going to be difficult and they delayed getting rid of Frank they should have done it while the World Cup was on because that was the perfect time to bring in a replacement manager who's got eight weeks yeah to look at what he's got mm -hmm. or or she he or she has got you know um so now now we've got um big Sean who's yes. much more he's a he's whatever his limitations may or may not be he's actually a manager with experience, um, you know, because the Palace game last season, that was purely, that was 45 minutes of disaster followed by yeah. 45 minutes of, oh my God, we're going to be all right. That wasn't mm -hmm. down to the map management, that was just down to the circumstances in those 45 minutes on the pitch, you know. Um, so, yeah, Frank, lovely person. I have met him as well. Very nice person. Yeah. <laughs> Terrible manager, I think. Uh, may become fantastic. But yeah, we knew it was going to be a horrible struggle. Of course, Frank Lampard was there until about the 23rd, I believe, of January mm. before Sean Dyche took over right at the end. Do you feel that that's a little bit of mismanagement as well by Bill Kenwright and Farhad Mashiri to let Frank have the whole of the transfer window and then bring... Sean Dyche in right at the end. Yeah, I mean, it's that's kind of symptomatic of the way Everton appears to be run from, <laughs> from uh, uh, the highest level. Not to do with the, with the individual players who all do their best and whoever the manager is and coach staff, they're all doing their best. But yeah. the cards they're being given are completely a mess. 
because <laughs> said you know okay if the board are thinking of getting rid of um frank you do it as soon as the world cup starts yeah you've got six seven eight weeks let's not do that let's wait till the very end of the january transfer window <laughs> bring in nobody change manager you've got a new manager he's got no money and no time yeah i mean you wouldn't run a you wouldn't run a restaurant like that, would you? No. <laughs> you know, we've lost all our customers. The chef's terrible. Let's keep going with the shame chef and the terrible <laughs> menu. Because customers yeah. are bound to come back at some point. Well, they weren't when they said you change things. So, it's yeah, it, is, it literally defies sense. It didn't, it didn't make sense for me after we beat you at Dean Court. 4-1 oh, uh, in the cup. 3-0 in the league. I know. Of course, fans are unhappy. Um, <coughs> it made sense to make the cut then. Um, but there has been a significant improvement under Sean yeah. Dyche. What, what has he done to actually change it from that game? Which, I'm going to be honest, Damon, so far this season, well, the entire season, um, Everton are the worst side we've played at home. Oh, yeah. we were, Those two games was, yeah. was literally anybody with... Half a brain and some eyes would, he was in charge of Everton, would have gone. He's got to go. That's it. Yeah. Should have gone before then, to be fair. But yeah, well, what Sean Dyche has done is given the team some self belief and tactics. Yeah. I mean, I know I've, I'm friends with a couple of old Everton players who get a lot of inside knowledge. You know, it's not just rumours, it's actually what goes on. And like Frank wasn't, would give no one any tactics. He would say to Mike Keane, I can't help you, you're too old. Whereas then Dyche comes in and organises the team. It's yeah. the basics of football, reinstates the basics of football. I mean, we're not talking like some revolutionary overlapping centre-backs running down the wing. It's just like the basics of football. Play the ball in, not two feet, but into space, get on turn, etc, etc. Look for the pass, turn out wide, all that usual sort of stuff you'd learn as a kid. Was was so was so lacking in those two Bournemouth games, you know. Yeah. The fact, you know, you've the, the in, and it was a sheer fear from the players where they would always play the most boring five yard sideways pass. Yeah, but pay it was such trepidation that the opposing team would know what they're about to do before they've done it mm-hmm. and be able to intercept it. At least now, in most games, like the Brighton game, that's where everything clicked. Yes. In, in position. And it's these are the same players that Frank had. It's just a belief and a will to get the job done and to actually not to be brave on the ball, you know, which is this this isn't revolution, you know. But uh, yeah, we were appalling those two games. But as Evertonians, we still believe we always yeah. have. It's it's some weird sort of <laughs> It's like a man who keeps walking into the same lamppost. Go next time we'll walk at the lamppost. The lamppost will move. Yeah. <laughs> Not going to. <laughs> that I was going to bring up that five-one win against Brighton because mm. nobody saw that coming at all. Brighton were going, have got themselves into Europe now. Yeah. But nobody saw that coming, and that game. You know how good were Everton, and was it the case that they were just playing at their complete maximum and have struggled to match that ever since because of course there was the one-all draw against Wolves at the weekend. Yeah, yeah I mean it's because Calvert-Luna had just come back as well so yeah. what we had been like blindly obviously lacking was that focal point uh, mm-hmm. so and having a fit Calvert-Luna or any fit 
number nine worth their salt. It doesn't have to be Caroline, yes. could be anybody, which is not Neil Mope, and it's not um, Ellis Sims yet. I, th- yeah. I, I hope eventually he will become a great number nine. But it was having that central figure that we know what we've got a get out ball. Mm-hmm. If we're being too too tightly pressed, we can go long to someone who is going to win it in the air. Yeah. So then you have the belief of the, the runners off him, whether it's Iwobi or Neil or um, Tamara Gay, whoever. It doesn't really matter at this stage. Um, so, and so Phil, Cal- Phil Calvert-Loon gave the team a focal point and we were playing our, our absolute best. And we were also playing a team that thought they would beat us. Mm-hmm. We're always better against teams that think they're better than us. We always seem to play really well against teams that are higher in the league against us. Teams that we should beat. Well, I mean, now we're always right down the bottom, so that's pretty much anybody. But, you know, know, say we're, like, you know, I don't know, we're playing a Fulham or a Leicester. Oh, we should be all right against them. We always play terrible. When we go go up against better teams, it's almost like we play better because... it must, it's the psychology of thinking, well, we're going to lose anyway, so we may as well go for it, you know, as opposed to... And we don't have to break teams down. Teams that are like a lot of possession, we're much better against that because we're, we are definitely not a possession-based team because yeah. after three or four passes, everyone starts to panic. <laughs> of course, the club um, have recorded losses of £370 million plus over three years, which mm. is concerning. And I've seen a couple of tweets out there from Evertonians saying that if Everton survive, it's prolonging the inevitable. But there is buyouts, Mm. talk of buyouts at the moment. Um, How concerning is that? And if the buyouts happen, of course, Bramley Dock is being built. How much of that £370 is attributed to the Bramley Dock move? Um, certain elements of it, I do actually, and I can't go into any details at all. No, of course. Um, some um, a business partner of someone I'm really close to um, is involved with um, the the potential takeover and buyout. Um, I know who it is. I know how much they're putting in. I know that what what amount of shares Machiri is selling, and I also know the bank that is underwriting. Um, finishing Bramley Moor, which is then obviously going to create more debt, but that's debt for that's debt for new um, majority shareholders. Yeah. So that's their debt as opposed to the club's debt, because that mm-hmm. debt is against their shares. Um, so that to me, me makes it very positive that we will stay here. Obviously, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> please do us a favour on Sunday. And, uh, <laughs> it'd be really good if, but if uh, Bournemouth players and Bournemouth fans turn up on Monday. Yeah, get the Don't day wrong. It's fine. Come the day after. It's fine. Be on the beach. <laughs> yeah, you'll, you'll be. Yeah, yeah, you'll be very, very warmly welcomed to uh, yeah. L four if you turn up on the wrong day. Um, so, I, my look view of the future is probably not as bleak as a lot of Evertonians because I do have a bit of insider knowledge. Um, but of course, then you, you then the, the new majority shareholders when they do take over, then you're in the position of like, how long will they stay? What are they like as football people? You know, it's like you look at Chelsea. If um, Mr. Bowley pulls out, they are gone. Mm-hmm. Their financial situation is abysmal yes. compared to ours. 
um, because they are reliant on one infrastructure run by one particular person who may decide to cut their losses. Mm-hmm. And that club can't then be sold again for that huge amount of billions because no one's going to touch it. Um, so there's always that danger with any of the football when there's a huge amount of money and it's a, it adheres around a small group of people. If they want to pull out, because these are business people who yeah. are very rich for a very specific reason is they're really tight with their money. Yeah, You know, there's all these massive figures going around, but they manipulate this money to make more money. Eventually, they will go. You know, so Chelsea were very lucky after Abramovich had to go that someone came in because at any given moment, a lot of the the clubs who are in the top two tiers could yeah. fall to pieces if they're um, if the ownership model decides they don't want it anymore. You know, so I yeah, that was a very long answer to. I'm not as fearful as most Evertonians. No, so I'm still sceptical of everything because I'm a true <laughs> Evertonian as well because that lamppost is still in front of me. Well, fingers crossed everything is sorted on that front. Will Evertonians miss the old lady once oh you move? Oh, my God. It's going to be appalling when we leave. Mm-hmm. On so many emotional levels, one of my best mates' ashes, I scattered his ashes at the church at Goodison St. Luke's. Mm-hmm. I used to go there with my dad, who's no longer with us. I went when I was first match when I was six with my dad. I used to go with my be- one of my best mates who sadly died of cancer. And his, as I said, he's ashes are at the church at Goodison Park. I took my my son when he was six. So it's yeah. not just that, it's all the memories of everything that's of your entire life has a blue thing running through it, which is attached to Goodison Park. So when we leave we go to this brand new beautiful stadium. Fantastic. But I've been to the Etihad. It's not as good as Main Road. Main Road is way better. So the new stadiums tend to be quite soulless in comparison. You know, the, yep. the, the the facilities are better, but no one's ever gone to a football match. Or, yeah, you know, oh, I'm going to support that team because they've got really good toilets. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. It's, it's not doing that. <laughs> to be honest, Goodison is amazing ground. One of my favourite grounds yeah. to go to as well. Um, it's just the atmosphere, the whole feel of the place. <laughs> you know that you're in an old ground and in a club with a lot of history as well. Yeah. Um, before I let you go, one thing we do need to do is predict this game. Um, so, Damon, how do you reckon this is going to go? Hang on a second. That's it. As I'm a lapsed Catholic. Uh, <laughs> massive Everton victory. We're going to batter Bournemouth 1-0. Tarkowski header in the... Eight, 80, I'm going to go for the 81st minute from a, a Dwight McNeil corner. We'll put us 1-0 up, which then will mean we'll be absolutely dying of fear for the remaining sort of <laughs> nine minutes. And then the ref's going to, the, the fourth official's going to put up the board and it's going to go 27 minutes of injury time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, um, well, where it, yeah, well, we've got to win, really. We don't have to win to yeah. stay up if Leeds and Leicester carry on on their trajectory, but we, that's not the way you look at it. We've just got to, we've just got to win. And we really... I've always, I've always loved Bournemouth. They're my second team. Yeah. Um, they're going to do us a favour, aren't, aren't you, Bournemouth? Exactly. And if, um, <laughs> any of the Bournemouth players and managers are going to listen to this, please don't. Uh, no, well, I, think, I think we'll win. And quite frankly, 
if we can't beat you, but you lot, who's, you know, have really nothing to play for at home in the most important game in the club's recent history, then we deserve to go down. If the team can't get up for that with, you know, nigh on 40,000 Evertonians kicking every ball for them, mm-hmm. um, you know, then the inevitable, that lamppost will eventually knock you over. But um, I think we'll win. <laughs> It's going to be utterly horrible. <laughs> I mean, I was at the... Uh, I missed the night four mm-hmm. game against Wimbledon because I was in Italy at the time. Yeah. The, the Palace game last season, I was actually down in Crystal Palace at a recording studio, mm-hmm. which was a very odd place to be. <laughs> yeah. But I was, at the 90, <laughs> uh, yeah, I was at the 98 game against um, Coventry when we needed to not lose to stay up. Yeah. Um, that was horrendous. And then the yeah. euphoria was incredible. So um, I actually do have tickets as well for Sunday. So I'm going to be there. Excellent stuff. Oh, I know. So it's either going to be, and it's quite a long way to get back to where I live as well, because I live in um, Wales, South Wales. So it's either going to be the nicest trip home ever or the worst. I've got to be honest. I think you will win. And I think it will be, do you know what? I think 2-0. I think actually 2-0. Okay. I think you'll get an early goal. That'll settle the crowd. Like you say, the Goodison Park crowd are going to be behind Everton. Um, it's going to be hostile. It's yeah. going to be difficult for Bournemouth. I've said it all along. I've said it all season that I thought it was going to come down to this for both clubs. Mm-hmm. Now we're safe. I can, I can only see one winner in this, to be honest. But, yeah. We will be seeing you next season, Dave. <laughs> I hope, bloody well, hope so. Yeah. <laughs> and you never know. Um, of course, the last trophy that was won, 1995, the FA Cup final against Manchester United. Paul Rideout scored mm. in that game. Um, can those days come back? Oh, easily. A cup win. Yeah, of course it can. Well, yeah. I mean, the, the days of us being anywhere near challenging for the title would only be if we go down yeah. <laughs> and then we're challenging yeah. for, you know, League One winners. Yeah. Um, <laughs> as, um, cups, excuse me, Cups, yeah. But, mm-hmm. you know, unless there's some breakaway from the top six and they form some European Super League, then the best of the rest, we might have a chance. But, yeah, yeah. I would, I would take a, I'd take top flight stages and, and an FA Cup would be delightful. It'd be really good for my son. Who's yeah. um, almost eighteen? He's been sporting Everton all his life. He hasn't witnessed nothing <laughs> apart from despair. Yet he still <laughs> believes. At least I've had three league titles and a couple of FA, two FA Cups and a European Cup to celebrate. Even though they were all quite a long time ago, but you know, my memory's still okay. Yeah, fair enough. Now, thank you so much for coming on, Thanks. Damon. It has been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Um, all the very, very best in whatever you do next. What's on the agenda for Damon Minchella? Um, back into the studio, um, got producing some records, um, got some gigs with Ashcroft, um, and I need to mow the lawn. Fair I've been in, yeah, well, I've got to mow the lawn before Sunday as well. Is that some off out, out the way so I don't have to think about that when I'm on my way up to Goodison Park? Ah, fair enough. Well, all the very, very best. 
you never it. know. Hopefully, we'll do this next season. I'm we sure we'll will, and we'll both, we we'll will both do. when we're both in the FA Cup final, and we've just had a really dull draw in the Premier League. FA Cup final, Bournemouth. Yeah, who would have thought that? <laughs> <laughs> Damon, absolute pleasure, yeah, and thank you so well. much, mate. Right. Cheers. Thank Enjoy. You. Enjoy, but don't enjoy Sunday. And thank you, everybody, for joining us on this show. Please remember to hit the like, the subscribe and the bell button below to be alerted to any new videos we do here on Up the Cherries in all departments. Please also do check out our recent shows as well. Um, We've had Benjamin Bloom on talking about the teams that might be joining the Premier League. Will it be Coventry? Will it be Luton? By the time we do play Everton at Goodison Park, we'll know who that is. We do also have our cherry picking show. Also do check out our other interviews. We had Kendall Rowan on talking about Newcastle and of course, Eddie Howe and Jason Tindall. He's still a centre of attention. Don't worry, everybody. He's still there. But until the next show, thank you for joining us this season and all the very, very best. Up the cherries. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.